0: Let me just say, you got to be very careful looking for good theology in Hollywood, Uh, and this is one example of that. Uh, How many of you noticed that one way that you can get really big quality points is being loyal to the Cleveland Browns? Did you notice that that was up there? I made sure Gary saw that um, when when we did the video. But anyway, I do want to say that so many times, again, when it comes to theology, especially the theology of heaven, I think even that whole idea of the afterlife, uh, many times we see, it, it, so many people have different ideas about what that entails. As much, even as far as how you get there, what happens when you get there, and all these different things. But the Bible is very clear on the afterlife, and, and so this morning, I want to continue the series that we uh, began last week, where last week we saw that this world it is nothing like the afterlife. There's nothing about the world today in which we live, this fallen creation that will be like the world to come, and the Bible, again, as I said, is very clear about that, but here's, some, here's a statistic that I think is quite uh, amazing. Seventy-four percent of Americans believe in a place called heaven. Now, ironically, 72 percent of them believe they're going there. Seventy-two of the seventy-four. Now, I want you to really think about that, because so many times when we think about heaven, we think, okay, what does that entail? What does that even look like? And for some of you, you're sitting here, and maybe there's some confusion about that. I, I think a, a lot of times, uh, even the best of us, maybe even get our ideas of heaven from good old southern gospel music. You know how that goes, and, and some of that's really good, but, but where, what does the Bible actually say about it? Well, what does it mean? So turn to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. Now, the Bible talks about heaven about 500 times in Scripture. There's so many different ideas or titles for heaven. Uh, Some places in Scripture will see the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of the Father, the joy of the Lord, the great reward, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ, the house of the Father, the heavenly Jerusalem paradise and also the city of god but i want you to understand that when paul begins to look into this when paul writes about heaven and by the way he's he's a good one to look to because he claims he's seen it before Do you remember the claim that Paul said? He said, I was called up into the third heaven. First of all, he tells you there was someone he knew. Turns out it was Paul himself, called up to the third heaven. We know the first heaven is our atmosphere. The second heaven is where the stars are, the universe. But the third heaven implies heaven itself. And Paul said he was called there, and he was there. But what's amazing is when he describes it, he describes it as something that's unimaginable. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, here's what he says. "I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered in the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. That verse means this. You cannot imagine. You cannot put into words. You cannot contain all that heaven is. And, and, it would, and, and even if I tried to describe it to you, it wouldn't make a whole lot of sense. That's what this verse is saying. It's beyond anything we can ever imagine. Paul in Philippians chapter 1, he says this, for to me to live is Christ and die is gain. Again, this is someone who's seen heaven. Of course, he has a big advantage. But if I live on in the flesh, this means I'll lay, uh, mean fruit for my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I cannot tell. I don't know if I want to go on to heaven or stay here and continue the great work. He says, for I'm hard pressed between the two, having a desire to, to depart. And the word depart there literally means to take up anchor and go to the next port. That's what that word actually means. I, I, I'm hard-pressed between staying here and doing that. I, and, and the second option is to be with Christ, which is far better, far better. So today I want to talk to you about the better place. Look at the introduction there in the outline. How does the Bible describe heaven? Now, this, may, this next part of the outline or of the introduction may surprise you, but the first question should be, which phase or juncture of heaven are we talking about? Which one are we talking about? Now, here's one thing that we do know. The Bible is very clear that when we pass away, when we leave this world, it says we are confident, yes, well pleased to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Those of us who know Jesus as our Lord and Savior, Paul, again, is writing here in 2 Corinthians. He's talking about uh, basically death, and he's talking about death being a separation, okay? And it's really a separation from the old body uh, and then going out into eternity. And, and here he's basically saying there's one thing we can be confident in is that when we take, up, when we take our last breath here, we will be present with the Lord. That's very clear. It can't get any clearer than that. So we do know that as we go through this idea of what I want to talk about this morning. But before I want to go, I go further, I want to talk to you about the journey of the dead. I mean, think about it. What, what, what happened to the Old Testament saints when they died? What, what happened before Jesus came on the scene? What was going on? When people died, what actually happened? Well, the Old Testament refers to the afterlife as Sheol. But then you get to the New Testament, and it's called Hades, but it's the same principle. There's two sides to this place. It's separated by a great gulf, and on one side is a place of suffering, and on the other side is a place of paradise. We see that in one of the stories Jesus told, okay? Now, between Jesus' death and his resurrection, according to Ephesians 4, it appears that he goes to this place called Hades. He goes there, and he takes those who have been waiting Okay, who've been waiting, he takes them with him, okay, to, to to heaven, okay, the idea of heaven. So he goes between his death and his resurrection, it appears in Ephesians chapter 4. He goes and he gets those on that one side of Hades, which, which is not the place of suffering, but a place of paradise, and he takes them with him to heaven. Okay? Now, the question is which heaven? Which one are we talking about? Because we seem to have three that seem to be in play when it comes to God's Word. And and the first one I want you to see is what I call, and some other commentators call, the intermediate heaven. The intermediate heaven. Some people call it a paradise, which we know there's paradise associated with it all. Now, the word paradise literally means garden of delight or place of delight. Okay? Now, we seem to see this... And we're not going to look at it this morning. I think it's next week when we look at this. Revelation chapter 4 seems to be the intermediate heaven. It's the throne of God. It is the third heaven. It's beyond the universe. And for everything that we see, we see a glimpse in Revelation chapter 4. We we get to peek in on what's actually happening there. Okay, And it appears to be where people go who, who, who pass from this world. Where Jesus went down to Hades and he took those there in paradise and he took them with him. He took them there. And when we die, that's where we go. Okay? If Jesus hadn't come back, that's where we go. So, if we die, this is where we would go. Now, when we get there, here's what we seem to learn in Scripture. When we leave this world and we go there, when we get there, the next thing on the timetable is awaiting our resurrected bodies, our new bodies, the Bible calls, okay? So we'll be waiting on that, and we'll be waiting for Jesus to return to earth, okay? Sounds like something neat to be ready for, doesn't it, okay? We'll be getting our new body, and then we go with Jesus as he returns back to earth. Now, how do we know some of this? Well, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul is writing to the church at Thessalonica, and he's basically, it seems to be everybody there is concerned about those who have died, those who have died. What happened to those people? What's going on? If Jesus is coming back and we're going to be with him, what about all those who's already died, okay? Because they thought Jesus was going to come back in their day. So in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, you hear this mentioned a lot of times at funerals. He says, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, those who have died, lest you sorrow as those who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. Basically, those who appear to be sleeping on our side. We know to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That means present with the Lord. So it's not that there's some kind of soul sleep going on here. It's that idea that from our perspective, they've gone to sleep, but they're with the Lord. For this, we say to you by the word of the Lord that those who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who, are, who have already died, those who are already asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. This appears possibly the idea of where we get the new body from. Okay? The bodies will go uh, as those who are, he's coming back with him. There's going to be this whole exchange here. Then those who are alive and remain, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord, therefore comfort one another with these words. So we've got all these different things that are happening. Where do we go when we die? We go to what appears to be the third heaven, the very throne room of God, what many would call the intermediate heaven. And what are we waiting for? New body and Jesus' return because we know we're going to come back with him at his return. Then there's a second phase or juncture of heaven, which is the millennium heaven. The millennium heaven. Now, when is this? Well, in Revelation chapter 19, you've got the end of the tribulation period. I don't know if you've ever studied the end of the the tribulation period, but what you have is seven years of chaos and judgment upon the face face of the earth, chaos like the world's never seen, judgment like there's never been seen. All those things will be important. Well, at the end of the Battle of Armageddon, or at the Battle of Armageddon, that's when Jesus comes back. He is going to intervene at the Battle of Armageddon when all the nations of the world will turn their backs on Israel. And he's coming back then, and the Bible says we will come with him. With him. Okay, that's pretty exciting when you think about it. All right. And then it seems he comes back, we get a resurrected body. That's where he defeats the armies of the world, and then he sets up his kingdom. Right here on earth. Now, you see, a lot of people are almost disappointed when they say, you mean a lot of stuff's going to just be happening here on earth? Yeah, but it's going to be an earth like you've never seen before. All right? And so basically, you see this. In Revelation chapter 20, look at verse 4. And I saw thrones and they that sat on them and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or their hands. So basically, this is language of the tribulation. This is those who, who didn't fall for the Antichrist and all this stuff. He, he's talking about them being a part of this, okay? And it says, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So, so the implication is Jesus comes back. We come back with him. Those who will join us will basically be those who did not bow their need, knee knee to the Antichrist. They'll be a part of the group, okay? But the rest of the dead, those will be basically go to a place of suffering, verse 5, okay? And they did not live again until the thousand years were finished, okay? So at the end of the thousand years, they're going to wait here for the final judgment. That seems to be what's happening, okay? So those who are in Christ... We get to be a part of this this thousand-year heaven, basically here on earth. The rest who do not know him will go to a place of torment, but it's also a, a waiting, a place of waiting, okay? And so we see all this based on what we know about the rest of Scripture. He says this is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is who is a part of the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. The second death will happen at the Great White Throne Judgment. Okay, He's going to raise them up and judge them and condemn them to hell. Basically, that's that's what that will be. And they, but the ones who are not a part of that, the others will be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with Him a thousand years. Now, again, when you read this stuff and you see this stuff, it's how many of you kind of feel that way? It's like, is this real? Can this really happen? And you see this, and it just kind of blows your mind. But think about a 1,000 years that the Bible says we'll be ruling and reigning with Jesus. Ruling and reigning with Jesus. Now, we have some clues as to what this is going to look like, even from the Old Testament prophets. In Joel 3.18, it says, And it came to pass in that day, That the mountains shall drip with new wine, the hills shall flow with milk, and all the brooks of Judah shall be flooded with water. A fountain shall flow from the house of the Lord and water the valley. Right now, that whole region is barren, basically. Okay. Then Isaiah 11. I don't know about you, but this passage kind of gets me excited. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. Have you seen that on any of the animal documentaries before? Just them sitting on the hillside just enjoying each other's company, right? You don't see that, right? The leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf, and the young lion, and the fatling together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. That's interesting. "Their, Their young ones shall live together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, The nursing child shall play in the cobra's hole, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. I don't know about you, but, you know, when I go and and I'm there for a thousand years and I see a child playing with a snake, I'm still going to say, this is not a good idea. I'm sorry. That's just (laughs) something I think my mom will tell me to do. Uh, But anyway, I mean, you're looking at a beautiful scene here. And basically, many people believe it's going to be a restored garden of Eden of some type. Now, I don't know about you, but I love nature, and I love those things. I, I, I do feel sorry for the, the thing that's being eaten by the lion. I mean, my heart goes out. I'm always pulling for him to get away, that kind of thing, you know, that kind of thing. But, 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 but wouldn't it be cool to just kind of see all that in reverse? Not, not the, 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 the predator e is getting eaten by the predator. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about we're all just getting along. That's pretty cool when you think about it. So, so think about that. For 1,000 years, that is our reality. 1,000 years after this millennium of heaven comes what we know as the great white throne judgment. After this time, and by the way, for this 1,000 years, Satan will be bound. He's going to be loosed. I don't understand all this, but here's what you got to understand. This, this might blow your mind a little bit. As you leave the tribulation period, we're going to come back. We're going to rule and reign with Christ. But there are going to be those who will live through the tribulation who will come into that 1,000-year period. Now, think about this. There will be those of us who have our new bodies. And there will be those of us who are still mortals based on what we read in Scripture. They're still going to have children They're going to repopulate this 1,000 years. Can you repopulate a lot of people in 1,000 years? Yeah. Some of you families can do it in a couple of generations the way you're going. Okay. (laughs) That's not a bad thing, by the way. But anyway, but I want you to think about this. This This is happening. This is going on. And all of a sudden, the Bible says Satan's going to be loose once again to deceive the nations and think about this. For 1,000 years, Jesus has reigned. We've been under that reign. We've seen his goodness. We've seen who, is it, who he is. And the Bible says Satan's going to be loosed to deceive once again, and people are going to fall for it. How many of you look at that and say, how would they do that? The same way the angels did at the very beginning. Satan is that, he's, he is a big deal to deal with. And then all of a sudden, at that moment, once once everything clears out, there's going to be something called the Great White Throne Judgment. All evil will be punished. Now, let me just say this. Our evil, our wickedness, our sin was handled by Jesus. But there will be those who never trusted Jesus for that. That they will now have to answer for that. All evil and wickedness now will be judged upon those who didn't choose Jesus. And all of a sudden, we enter in at that moment, it appears, to what we call the eternal heaven. The eternal heaven. I want you to think about that. The last thing that seems to be timed on God's calendar is that judgment. That judgment still awaits. But after that, we enter into eternity. Now, it gets even more interesting, okay? We come to chapter 21. Now, time has ended as we know it, but what will this eternity be like? Well, first of all, we see a new creation, a new creation, okay? Second Peter chapter 3 says this, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat, both the earth and the works that are burned will be burned up in it. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in a holy conduct and godliness? Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Because of which the heavens will be dissolved. Now, we're not talking about the throne room heaven. We're talking about our atmosphere. Uh, Everything has been touched by its fallen creation. All those things are going to be dissolved by fire. And the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. But you know what's destroyed? Chaos and disorder. Those things will be destroyed. How many of you look forward to that? All that's gone. No more Satan. No more that. We're in eternal bliss. It's a whole new day. Okay, Revelation chapter 21, look at verse 1. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. This basically tells us it's literally a brand new work. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. First heaven, first earth passed away. The earth as we know it, the atmosphere as we know it, the, the, it's, it's going to pass away. It's gone. Something new is coming. So first of all, we see heaven restored. Now again, we're talking about the atmosphere. We're talking about the creative heaven. The heavens, the atmosphere purify, purified where the enemy once ruled. The celestial will be destroyed, it appears. Sun, moon, stars, All that is gone away. Something new, something new is coming. How about this? The earth is restored. We're talking about the land. The curse reversed. No more disease, destruction, decay. No more thorns and weeds and hopefully, at least this is what I'm praying for, no more insects. And then thirdly, the sea is restored. Water, the Bible literally says it, at the end of verse one, no more sea. It seems to be like a footnote. Now, why? Would, I don't know about you, but I like the ocean. I like hanging out by the ocean. I'd like to kind of see an ocean. You know, if you say, God, give me some. If you want my input, I think we leave it. You know, you know that's just me. But 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 really, what this is talking about is talking about the way the sea played on people. Do, do you realize? In the ancient world, the sea was the most frightening thing you could ever go out into. Now, I mean, they literally believe you could fall off the end of the earth. <laughs> it's always been a source of great, great fear. And, and we see the, the seas, the roaring of the seas, and we see all these different things. I personally believe this is just me. It's not that the sea's gonna disappear, it's just gonna be re- restored in such a way. That I think it'll be just very calm, inviting, no more fears going to be associated with it. So we see the sea will now be at rest. Some people say that the reason John put this in there is do you know where he was bound? He was bound to the Isle of Patmos, it wasn't that big. And all he saw for many years as yes, he was bound there was the sea, and no more sea! <laughs> No, I don't think that was it. But anyway, no personal privilege in God's Word, but that that would be interesting. Not only do we see a new heaven and a new earth, but also a new city. Revelation chapter 21, verse 2, Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Wow. Wow. Now, why is it important for John to be talking about a New Jerusalem? Because just twenty some years before he wrote this, Jerusalem's has been destroyed by Rome. Did you know that? The temple's been restored uh, has been uh, destroyed. everything's been restored restored uh, you know basically destroyed. So Jerusalem. Heaven's capital. We see this at the center of the eternal heaven. We see buildings are described, streets, inhabitants, activities are all part of the city. And we'll look at it in just a moment. But here's here's another thing we need to look The appearing described. And the first thing we see here is the last vision. Uh, Revelation 21, verse 9. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues. We're looking at the end of basically the tribulation period came to me and taught with me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. Okay? I'll show you the bride. Now, the bride, or Lamb's wife, has always been a reference to the church. Always been a reference to the church. Okay? So, so basically, John is being introduced to that whole idea. Now, is it, is it, is it the, the, the whole idea of the, the people of God? What is it? Well... Could be, but it could also be a reference to the city itself, the place that's been prepared for the bride, okay? But, uh, and, and so that's where we go to John chapter 14. Uh, Jesus has just told them, told the disciples, hey, guys, I'm, I'm going to basically be put to death. I'm going to leave you, but don't worry. John chapter 14. Let your heart not be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would, not, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again to myself uh, and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Okay, We're basically going to dwell together for eternity. That's what Jesus is telling me. Okay, So we see that, the last appearance, but then we see the arrival. There's this arrival that takes place. Now, this would be a phenomenal scene. Revelation 21, verse 10. He carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, holy Jerusalem, descending out of the heavens from God. This city appears to come from the heavens, and it's moving down to the face of the earth. Now, how many of you would say, I kind of like to see that. that? That would be pretty good. Okay, you, you really want to based on how it's going to be described. But the New Jerusalem seems to be a stationary city as it comes down to the, to the earth. Now, there are several things in the way he describes this. First of all, there's what's called the much mores. And the first thing we see that he mentions is the light of the city, the light. Now, how many of you um, like the light? Yeah, when you're scared. How many of you remember when you, how many of you when you were a child, you were scared of the dark? Oh yeah, I was terrified. My grandmother, we would spend the night there quite often, and she had this big window. And, and to go from where everybody's sitting in the living area to go to the bedrooms, you gotta go by this large window. That thing terrified me. I had two younger sisters that I would make go first before I would go. <laughs> Me, fear, you know. I mean, it's amazing how something so simple can cause such great fear. And, and to me, as long as, and, and part of the reason I had my sister go first is to turn on the light so I could come through, you know, because the switch was around the corner. But anyway, but the light is important. And, and so basically, what is this light? Look at verse 11. Having the glory of God, it's the fullest expression of God and his attributes. Her light was like a most precious stone. Like a jasper stone, clear as crystal, the light there is God's glory. Wow, that's amazing. The walls of the city. Verse 12, also she had a great and high wall with 12 gates and 12 angels at the gates and names written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. Three to the east, three to the north, three to the south, three to the west. Now, once you you get the description, In, in, in just a little while, we're going to see a little bit about the wall. But the wall, we're going to learn, is 216 feet thick. That's a big old wall you're talking about. Okay? That's big. Walls made of jasper. Gates made of giant pearls. We're going to talk about this in a moment. Twelve gates named after the twelve tribes of Israel. I believe it's to remind us of the covenant God's made with the people. And we see all that. So we see that. Then there's the foundation of the city. Revelation chapter 21, verse 14. Now the wall of the city had twelve foundations. And on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Now again, you're going to notice the Lamb keeps popping up. Who is the Lamb? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. The Lamb of God. That is, it's almost like the theme of this whole place is the Lamb, the sacrificial Savior, Jesus. Okay? So, so we see the 12 foundations, and the 12 apostles. So we've got the 12 tribes of Israel, got the 12 tribes. We've got God's people, and we got the church. Okay? All of them are represented there. The covenant, basically, the idea of the covenant is right there in full view. Then we have the dimensions of the city. This is where it gets very interesting. Verse 15. And he who taught with me had a gold reed to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. The city is laid out as a square. Its length is as great as its breadth. And he measured the city with the reed 12,000 furlongs. Now, it depends on who you read, but this could be anywhere between 1,400 to 1,500 miles That's a lot. This is a big area here, okay? It's length, breadth, and height are equal. 1,400 miles long ways, 1,400 miles that way, 1,400 miles that way. Wow. Now, he goes on in verse 17. Then he measured his wall, 144 cubits, that's 216 feet, like we said, according to the measure of a man, that is, of an angel. So basically, it's described, and there's been some debate about what's actually being seen here. Is this a cube? A city that's a cube that's coming down? Could it be a pyramid? I mean, when you start talking about, it, I guess the top could go up. doesn't say it doesn't. Or is it just a cube? So there's been a lot of debate as to to what that is. But here's what we do know. It's over 2 million square miles in this cube, in this whatever this is. So if you were basically more than half of the United States, its height, uh, basically, if you lay it down from Maine to Florida. Now, now you you look at that. that, that's, That's how it would sit over the U.S., okay? All right. Um, And now, here's what's also interesting. It's, yeah, that's over the Middle East, okay? That's kind of where it would sit. Covers a lot of places, doesn't it? (laughs) But here's what's interesting. This is more phenomenal to me than anything. How high is this, Joker? 1,400 miles high. The International Space Station is 250 miles up. This is 1,400 miles up. Now, again, I don't know about you. I'm trying my best to discern what God's Word is here. John himself, you got to understand, John is looking at this. Okay? This is a man who's never seen what we've seen. Okay? So he's trying his best to see it for what it is and describe it. But what's amazing is all the details are given to him by an angel. All the details. Think about all the details associated with this. I can't can't even imagine this. That this city goes as high as 1,400 miles. How about the materials? Revelation chapter 21, verse 18. The construction of its wall was of jasper. And the city itself, I think this is a reference to the buildings, was pure gold like clear glass. And the materials of the foundation were made up of these stones that you'll read there in those verses. So, you got these 12 stones as a foundation as it comes down. That's, per, that's what you'll see first. Okay? All right. Then, the materials of the gate of the city, the 12 gates were 12 pearls. Each individual gate was of one pearl. Now, Now, here's what's interesting about the pearl. The pearl, I didn't know this until recently. Was one of the most valuable things in the ancient world. Out of everything, the pearl was one of the most expensive ancient thing of the world. How about the river of the city? Revelation, you had to go to chapter twenty-two, and he showed me a pure river of wat of light, water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. So we see the river, the trees of the city, verse two. In the middle of the streets and on either side of the river was the tree of life. Oh, yeah. Can he bring the tree of life back into play? Yeah. We're now built for eternity. You, you know that, right? The, the body, the new body can withstand it because there's no corrupt. There's no defilement in it, okay? So now the tree of life's re-entered which bore 12 fruits, each yielding its fruit every month. You got, you got the fruit of the month club going on here. I mean, this is pretty cool. One day you walk by and there's an apple. Next month, orange. Next month, I'm pulling for something else. I don't, you know what I'm saying? I mean, it's pretty cool. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. What he's saying here, and some people say, is that literally what we're going to see? Possibly? I wouldn't be surprised. I think there's, can God pull it off? Obviously. But I think there's a lot of symbolism here also of what eternity is like. The abundance of eternity. The blessing of eternity is what we're seeing here. How about this? The no more is described. There's no asphalt. Don't be disappointed. I kind of like the smell of asphalt when it's being poured. Y'all, any of y'all like (laughs) that? Maybe I'm sick, but I kind of like it, you know. But, but there's no asphalt. Look at verse 21, the second part. The street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. So this is gold like we've never seen before. There's no temple. How many of you are surprised by that? No temple? What do you mean no temple? Well, there's no need for it. Verse 22. But I saw no temple in it for the Lord Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. What the temple represented or seen in the embodiment of them. They are, they, we're dwelling with them. That's what the tabernacle and temple was all about. God coming down and dwelling with us. Well, we're there. No luminaries. Verse 23, the city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it for the glory of God illuminated it. The lamb is its light and the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light. And the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall be not shut at all by day. There shall be no night there. Wow. And they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations and into it. Wow. No defilement. Verse 27. But there shall be no means into it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. (laughs) Those who have... Trusted Jesus, Lamb's Book of Life, right there. You gave your life to Jesus, new body, new place. Here's your home. Here's your home. No defilement. It'd be pretty cool to live in a city with no crime, no garbage. To me, I think what defiles a lot of stuff around here is traffic. I'll be honest with you, traffic everywhere, you know. Um, I'm joking with that, so just keep moving, but anyway. But you know what's interesting? Here's what's really interesting. You can write this down Luke 19, 12 through 27. It also appears that there's going to be other cities in this eternal heaven. You got the New Jerusalem coming down, you got where it is, you go around the world, other cities. Wow. I mean, think about it. No curse. Verse 3, and there shall be no more curse, but the throne of the God and Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. How are we going to serve? No more toiling? No more tiredness? No more whatever you're dealing with? No night? Look at verse 5. There will be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. And then next, we have a new communion. In Revelation chapter 21, look at verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And that's the reason we need no temple. So the tabernacle, the idea of tabernacle means he'll dwell with them. And the language here is one of communion and fellowship that we'll experience forever. Revelation chapter 22, look at verse 4. They shall see his face, could not before, and his name shall be on their foreheads. It's the idea of identification. That means there's no more veil between us and the most holy, God himself. Not only a restoration of the the cursed world, but also perfect fellowship and communion. And then there's a new constant. The no mores. Revelation chapter 21, verse 4. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. No more tears. There will be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There will be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. And then the much mores. Revelation 21, 5. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I will make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. You can count on what's being mentioned here. So here's what John did. I want you to put yourself in John's situation. Paul said what he saw was unimaginable. You you can't even get your mind around what God has prepared for us. So John, when he sees these things, he sees all the detail. He's looking and he's trying to, okay, how can I best describe this to people? Something that is totally out of this world. And what it appears that he does, he takes the most precious things of the world in which we live today, gold, silver, precious stone, and he ascribes it to those mundane things in the next world, streets of gold, no asphalt. Do you see what I'm saying? So the precious things, things that we hold to be most dear here in this world, just typical things over here in the next world. And that was... Really, when you look at it, it's the best he could do to describe it to us. So really, when it comes down to it, here's the application. Will heaven be your reality in eternity? Think about this. Will this be your reality? I mean, that's pretty heavy when you think about it. The no mores, the much mores. There's some things I'm looking forward to in the, End of temptation. How many of you are sick of temptation? How many of you just, it just wears you down, you fight, you fight the battle? No more temptation. The suffering and the pain of this world, gone. The end of the heartbreak of death. Some of you have dealt with that recently. The heartbreak that comes with that. That's not found there. A place where there's no need for hope, think about it, a place where there's no need of hope because it's all there. Anything you could ever hope for or desire is there. It's right there. The end of evil and ungodliness, think about it. Can you imagine what the news is going to look like in heaven? By the way, God's begun something new again. Here it is. Not how evil things are getting. Beautiful side of that. New and perfect communion with Jesus. That's what awaits us. I think I told you this not long ago, but I remember, <clears throat> and, and I don't mean any disrespect, but I remember when I was a young, young guy, I think I was like 12 years old, and I was at my grandparents' church, and they had a tall pastor up there, and he was passionate. I mean, he hellfire and brimstone and everything on top. I mean, he was, I mean, when it seemed like when he pointed, the finger would just come right to the edge of your nose. You ever seen those kind of, I mean, hair slicked back? I mean, he was the epitome, boy. And he said this one time. He said, if you don't like being in this service, and by the way, I was bored out of my mind. You're not going to like heaven. And I was like, oh, please don't let heaven be like this. Please. (laughs) Y'all, it's more than we could ever, ever imagine. We, We can't duplicate it. We can't even come close to it. And here's what's ironic about it all. You know what? It's so unimaginable, we can't even relate to the much mores. But boy, we can relate to the no mores. We know what it means to to lose someone to death. To go through a life of sorrow and pain. We we, we can relate to that. but We can't even relate to the much more. So right now with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I just want to pray for us. If there's someone in this room, maybe you've never made the decision to follow Jesus and trust Him as your Lord and Savior. to, To be able to make this your future reality. You have the greatest need in this room. Father, I just pray right now for that person that's sitting here today that doesn't know you. Father, I pray that you've been working in their heart. Maybe they are caught up in all the wonders of heaven, but right now, their greatest need is to be saved from their sin, to turn and place their faith in you and follow you by faith all the days of their life. Father, help them to realize that's the greatest need they have right now. They'll never have a a need greater than that one. And, Father, before they leave, I pray you'll draw them to to one of the pastors that's here today or contact us during this week, Father, that, that, that you will just continue to work in their hearts. And then for those, I think many in this room, maybe we can say we've done our share of suffering. We know what grief, we've been touched by grief. We know the hurt and the pain of losing someone that we love so much. Father, I just pray that what we've discussed here today will be an encouragement to them, that those who have preceded us will never be left out of your plan, that we can count on, if they know you and we know you as our Lord and Savior, we're going to see them again. We're going to worship with them. We're going to have communion and fellowship with them in ways that were never imaginable in this world right here. Father, we thank you for this place that we call heaven. In Jesus' name.